If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. God's word of comfort to his people. Just for some context, we'll start by reading a few verses from chapter 39 and then continue on. Starting in Isaiah 39, verse 6. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like a flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span? And closed the dust of the earth in a measure? And weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? 
Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not heard? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, it is difficult not to read these words and consider how, how small we are in comparison to you how little we have to offer, how little right we have to ask anything of you. And yet we ask, Father, we ask that you would fulfill your promises, that your Holy Spirit within us would work together with your Holy Word that will not return void, that stands forever to work in our hearts, that we might know you more, that we might love you more, that we might follow after your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Where is God amid tragedy? It's, it's easy to a certain extent, weeks like these, another school shooting, this time in a, in a church's school, one of our own denomination, to ask the question, God, where are you? 
But even if that weren't this week, there's wars, there's rumors of wars, there's disease, there's distrust and opposition and oppression and injustice. And so it can be understandable to ask this question, God, where are you? But this passage, this, this prophecy gives us an answer that God, in spite of what we may think, is not far off. And indeed, he is coming. And those of us who know Christ know that he has come. Yes, he's coming again. And there's this already come, have come tension, but, but will be returning tension that we live in. But we know that God has come. And when we ask this question, where are you? What we're, we're saying is that we desire God's presence. Because what this passage reveals to us is that, that God's comforting presence is good news to his people. And that's largely what Jesus did in his time on earth was demonstrate the presence of God to his people both announcing and being good news by coming to his people in power and in love. And so the ministry of Christ is fulfilled in him speaking the good news, just as Isaiah was speaking to Israel, but also in being that good news to God's people. So we're going to look at the good news that Isaiah has here for us. And in the way it's announced and the way it arrives, and some alternatives that others want to present to the good news, and how we can apply that good news to ourselves. But first, we see the announcement of this good news. If you, you keep in context that prophecy that Isaiah gave to the king, that, that everything is going to come undone, that Israel is going to be carried away, and even his own sons are going to go and be taken into exile. And then immediately, it's followed up by this word, comfort. Comfort, my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. This suggests a, a, an emotional intensity and, and intimacy that God desperately wants his people to understand his desire for them is comfort. Indeed, he says, my people, and he refers to himself as your God, which is emphasizing this, this relationship that he has with them, especially when you consider elsewhere in Isaiah, he refers to them as this people. But here, he wants to say, my people. He says that, that her warfare is ended. This word, maybe your translation says her hardship or her hard service. It's a, it's a difficulty. It's a struggle. It's a trial. All the pain and suffering that she is going through, God is saying her warfare, that difficulty, that pain is ended. And all the sin that, that is going to result in this exile that Isaiah is prophesying and will continue to prophesy, all the sin, all the iniquity that caused that is pardoned. And not only that, but, but where she should deserve judgment for all that sin and all that iniquity, he says she's going to re receive double, double in grace. Not only does she not get what she deserves, 
this nation of Israel. But she's going to receive even more in grace. All these things are good news. But the question might come, how? How are these things going to happen? You just said we're going to get carried off into exile. We're looking around at the world and we don't see this. How are these good things coming to God's people? And the answer is that God himself is coming. This is not Israel just figuring out a way to comfort itself. This is God's work. This is God's coming. This is God's presence. As you see, he's, he says, prepare this way. This way that's, that's to be straight and direct and unhindered. This is not a pothole-laden road. He's saying this is going to be a direct, successful trip. I am coming, and there's going to be nothing that gets in my way. Maybe you recognize these verses as they're quoted in the New Testament in reference to John the Baptist, who was declaring the same thing, the good news is coming. But unlike John the Baptist, Christ was the good news that came. And it says, all flesh shall see this glory of the Lord, which has a little bit of end of days tone to it, just like Philippians 2, that every knee will bow. But what this is communicating is that, that God's presence will be revealed to his people. His, his specific action, his glorified state will be apparent to them. Because when the glory of the Lord shows up, it's, it's what I've heard described as the manifestation of his absolute reality. Do you want to know what God is like? He is glorious. And so when his glory shows up, that is him showing up. And Israel's only hope in this case is for God himself to break into human history. The need is very clear. All flesh is grass. If you're looking to yourself, if you're looking around in the, in the nation of Israel who say, where is our hope? You're looking around, it's not in us. All flesh is grass. It's transient. It's undependable. Maybe you're thinking, well, I had to mow my lawn once a week. Grass seems pretty dependable. And yet, how many lawn care services exist, not to keep the lawn mowed necessarily, but to keep the lawn green? Israel is, in a sense, asking Isaiah, hey, this seems great. These words that God is promising seem nice, but, but we can see the danger we are in. We can feel acutely the struggle that we are suffering. What, what good are these words? And as Isaiah says, you can see it, yes, but everything you see is grass compared to the words of the Lord. Not even compared to the Lord, compared to the words of the Lord, which last forever. And they last forever because he lasts forever. I mean, we're all looking for something. We're all waiting for something to come to us, to help us, to save us, to rescue us, to give us what we think we need. What if that thing was the Lord himself? What if that, that hope that we had was in God himself? Because we see that, that God is coming. We see this arrival of good news. 
It says in verse 9 that, that Zion, that Jerusalem is to be a herald of good news, to declare, here is the good news. This is, this is a call for evangelism, a call to be a prophet among the nations, which was always God's vision for Israel. This is what Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says the God of all comfort, who comforts us, enables us to then go and comfort others. He's saying, you know the Lord, and he is coming, and so declare this good news. And Christ does this perfectly. He both declares the good news, and he, he is the bringer of that good news. And there's this idea of these verses over and over again. It's building, it's building. The Lord is coming. We're preparing a way. A voice says, cry. The Lord is coming. Go on up to a high mountain so that everyone can hear you and be this herald of good news. What is the good news? Behold your God. Look, look and see. He is here. The Lord God comes with might. He comes with might and his reward and his recompense are with him. This is the idea of, of a, a victorious king who comes back with the spoils of war. When the Lord comes, it's not going to be uh, I, guess, I guess he kind of did the job. He comes successfully with all the, all the things that he deserves for the victory that he has accomplished. And what does that look like? How does Isaiah describe it? His arm rules for him. But not only does his arm rules for him, his arms also do something up. He says it will gather the lambs in his arms. And the arm was this image of God's strength and God's power and God's might. And yes, he says his arms will rule, but also he says his arms will gather up his lambs and his sheep. This is kind of a, a contrasting work of God who, who is both powerful, but also compassionate and tender contrasting but not contradictory because they both come from the Lord. In my alma mater, we had this facility called Winthrop Lake. It was really a glorified pond, but people would go out and picnic there. And I remember one time I was picnicking with my friends and there's this guy who walks by. I mean, he was, he was tall. He was built a fantastic beard and he's walking kind of like this like you know you like you can't put your arms down because you're so built kind of thing walking along and he's got a leash and at the end of the leash is this dog that's about six inches tall <laughs> and the girls in our group are always like oh let's go pet the dog and the guys were like sure if that's what you want we can go pet the dog and we went up and we asked him what's the dog's name and you could see this composure changed and his smiles a little bit he says mr benjamin <laughs> <clears throat> that's the image here. That's the image here. God who is strong and in might, but who speaks tenderly and gathers up his people in his arms. That we read earlier, he is the good shepherd. His sheep know his voice and he cares for them all. 
He cares generally for his flock like a shepherd, but it also says he will gather the lambs. This is a specific need. And he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. It's not that he just generally cares for his people, but he knows specifically the acute needs that they have. Is a compassionate, compassionate person that is being described. Even as Jesus, during the triumphal entry, which we normally celebrate here on Palm Sunday, even as Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he cares so much for his people. And see, too often we can be led into thinking that God's primary characteristic is power or strength or might. But here, when he's coming, he's coming with might, yes. But when he wants to communicate how he's coming to his people, he says he's coming like a shepherd who's going to gather them in his arms. Where do you need reminding that God is both strong and caring? But most importantly, that God is present with you. And still, even with all of this great truth that Isaiah has communicated, you can see he anticipates the doubts and the questions that are to come. What if there is something else, some alternative that we could look to instead of God and waiting on him? And he goes into this long, extended section. Let's look at some of the alternatives, he says. And he uses a lot of questions to get at their heart, to, to, to make them think about what they are saying because they're looking around and they're saying, we don't see God, but we can see these things. What do they see? They see creation here. Who measured the waters in the hollows of his hand, Isaiah says. They're looking out at the world and they're saying, maybe we could figure something out. We could achieve something based on the, the physical world around us. And God, and God communicates through the prophet Isaiah his easy competence in creation. It's not that he created the world, yeah, but it took a lot of work. He was easy competence for him. He measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. All the waters in all the world, in all of creation, he's like, yeah, it's about, it's about this much. He marked off the heavens with a span. All the heavens... Everything that we can see in the sky, he takes out a yardstick and he's like, yeah, it's about this much. Enclose the dust of the earth in a measure. The reason that sounds kind of weird, in a measure, is because in the Hebrew it just says, in a third. Whatever unit of measurement they're talking about, he doesn't even need the full. He just needs a third to enclose all the dirt in all of creation. And even the mountains and the hills, he puts them on the scale. He's like, yeah, it's about that much. Easy competence in creation. This echoes Genesis over and over again. In this section of Isaiah, he actually uses the word create more times than the entire book of Genesis. These, these chapters here of Isaiah. It says, who did he consult? Who taught him? 
Who showed him? This is combating this pagan idea of, of the creator God who had to consult. He needed some advice. How, how do I go about creating the world? And Isaiah is saying, God had no counselor to help him figure this out. He was unaided in his creation. Even later, it talks about the stars, the hosts that come out. And it says, he knows each one. And he calls them out and commands them. You see these pictures of the James Webb telescope is taking of, of, of space and all these stars that we had no idea they were there. God knew they were there. And he knew their true name. And we see Jesus reflect this. As he calms the storm, as he uh, feeds the 5,000, he masters creation, just as God says he does here. So maybe you're like, okay, it's not creation. There's not something out there, but there are tons of nations on earth that we could figure out a way to cooperate and and just figure this all out and overcome our struggles. But that's not going to work. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Like it's not even worth wiping it off the scale to make sure it's accurate measurement. All the nations There's this metaphor for smallness. And then in verse 16, there's this metaphor for inadequacies. Like even if you want to worship well, you could take the entire nation of Lebanon, which is known for its mighty trees. You could take all the trees in Lebanon and use those to make an altar. And it's not going to be good enough, especially when you're considering all the animals in Lebanon as a sacrifice. You could take all of that and it's not going to be an adequate way to worship the Lord All the nations, he says, are as nothing before him. When you have young kids, you got to prioritize what messes you're going to clean up. And sometimes there's a little spill. It's like, it's just not even worth it. And that's the image here. It's, It's just, it's a few drops. It's just not even worth it. The nations in comparison to the Lord. And so Jesus, when confronted with the might of Rome... And, and the, the most precise way that it could enact justice, so to speak, against him. It looks like they win, but they don't win. And he is raised again and overcomes their power. So maybe it's not the nations, but then, then Isaiah presents kind of the, the DIY option of an idol. And in case you're curious, he gives you instructions. Here's how an idol is created. A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished, if you can't afford that, you get some wood that won't rot. And hopefully you get a skilled enough craftsman that will set up an idol that doesn't move. If you know the story of of the Philistines and the Ark of the Covenant and the statue of Dagon, when an idol moved, it was normally a bad sign as the statue falls before the Ark of the Covenant. But, but here it's kind of a, a compliment and an insult. The best craftsman, the best human could make an idol that doesn't move. And he's saying, you're going to put your hope in that? The, the highest compliment is, I made this really pretty rock that doesn't move. Whereas we have a God who is both immovable 
and yet chooses to move toward his people. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, casts down idols, even of, of the Pharisees, these, these Israelites who had set up for themselves an idea of what they needed to accomplish in order to achieve their purposes. So it's not creation, it's not the nations, it's not idols. Maybe we could find the right leaders, the right people to get the job done. But not even that. Verse 23, it says, who, that is God, brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. This idea of the prince being like the figurehead and, and the ruler being the one who actually does the work, either one are nothing and emptiness before him. And he, he even gives this, this image of a plant that's planted, is sown, that, that takes root, and then it's gone. It's like a dandelion. You're like, oh, look, there's a dandelion. Oh, it's gone. That's, that's the image here of princes. How many times have we put our hope in some politician, some policy, some leader, and it come back to bite us because they are like a dandelion? And so the final nail he lays here is, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And holiness is, is sort of the capstone of what it means to describe God. You're trying to make all these comparisons, and God says, don't even try. It's not, it's not like some pagan ideologies that gods are just kind of like a, a, a bigger, better, classier version of human. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm an entirely different being, wholly different, wholly other. To whom then Will you compare me? So which of these do you view as a possible option for salvation, for comfort, for hope? Which one are you waiting for? Because you can see all these options, but none of them are mighty to save. We need someone who is present, yes, but who has saving power. And so Isaiah moves in to apply this good news of God's presence. This whole passage is leading to this question in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? This is the question. Where is God? He doesn't even see us. He's not hearing our prayers. My right is disregarded. Where is God in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my pain? Why is he not acting? Maybe he, he doesn't want to. Maybe he's not able to. But we've just seen that he's able, much more able than anything else that we could look to. And earlier, we saw that he wants comfort, comfort for his people. So given recent history, this, this, is, this is a fair question. Violence, war, disease, injustice, shootings, abuse, oppression, evil, sin, all these things should lead us to this place. 
The question for some of you is maybe even more urgent. I don't have to know each and every one of your struggles to know there is something in your life that has you weary and faint and wondering, where is God in this? This is not a new question, though. This is the same question that Eve had as she waited for the seed that would crush the head of the serpent. This is the same question that Noah and his family had for 40 days and nights as the waters are covering the earth. This is the same question of Abraham who waited for an heir, for Israel who was in Egypt for hundreds of years, who wandered the desert for 40 years, who time and time again had a new judge that saved them, and then they fell back into judgment. This is the same question that God's people likely asked in the 400 years between the last Old Testament prophecy and Jesus' birth. This is the question of Paul when it came to his thorn in the flesh. This is the same question that runs through the book of Revelation that John, the apostle of Jesus, who was exiled on Patmos, wrote, ending by saying, Come, Lord Jesus. Where are you, God, is a welcome question. God's not afraid of this question. But he wants us to ask it in faith, expecting him to come, expecting his hope. And we look to Jesus, who who himself is God's presence, who both told of good news and is good news. He gave us his own Holy Spirit. Even as he returns to heaven, he gives us his spirit that resides within us. With all the power and all the compassion and all the might described here, that resides in the Holy Spirit who resides in us. And so the salvation here that Isaiah describes is is this renewal, this, this relearning. Have you not heard it's kind of a rhetorical question. They have heard. They do know. We tend to think of prophecy as, as this forward-looking thing, and it often is, but it's always built on what has come in the past, who God is and what he's done and what he's promised. He's saying, have you not heard who God is? He does not faint or grow weary, and his understandings is an unsearchable. He has the power to save We don't necessarily understand why he is not here in the way that we hope, but he has the power to save. He contrasts it here with these who do faint, who do grow weary. These youths and these young men, these are like the pinnacle of human strength. Even those people, even the Olympic athlete, after they compete, is exhausted. Not so with the Lord. And he gives freely. Not only does he have all the, faint, all the power and all the strength, he doesn't grow faint, he doesn't grow weary. He has an excess to give to others. To which others? Those who wait on the Lord. This is the only qualification for receiving God's help, is waiting on the Lord. We saw an image of that from Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter 2, who had waited for years, for decades, And you saw their joy when they they realized that the Lord had come, that the Savior was there. 
This isn't just just a, a killing of time, but it's an expectation and a patience and a trust. It's an ongoing perpetual action as the rhythms of our lives, as the habits that we, we live in should form us to wait for the Lord. See, often we wait, but just for a minute. Well, God, I waited and you didn't show up. I'm moving on. And our trust is fickle. And our expectation is short-lived. But faithfulness to God is resting in him, not trying to exert our own will as if we can just do enough things and, and have enough effort and, and have enough knowledge that we can figure this out on our own, but to rest. Say, Lord, I can't, and I need you, and I know that you will give me what I need. To slowly but surely over weeks and months and years and decades to learn that he has you in his arms. And even as we do that, we should imitate God and moving into these difficult spaces and being his presence as his spirit is within us, being his presence in others' difficult situations, not as a savior, but as, the, as ones who know the one who is a savior. And Jesus is here in this passage as the one who comes willingly and mightily, even knowing the cross was coming to his people to give strength to the weary. His yoke is light. But we too are in this passage. Either we are those who are looking to anyone or anything to give us hope, or we are the people who need comfort, yes, but who look to the Lord as we are faint and weary that our warfare may be ended and that we will receive from him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would wait for you. That in the midst of our struggle and our pain and our difficulty, we would not doubt who you are, even as we don't understand, but that we would look to you and your strength and your compassion, knowing that you are faithful to your people. Help us to be formed in this knowledge, to encourage one another in this knowledge, to share this knowledge with all people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.